The day that I met Mike, the interview you're about to hear, my mind was focused on leaving, really. Um, You know, that morning I had packed up all of my belongings in New York and I put them in a storage closet. And my motorcycle was getting desperately needed tune-up and some new tires. I was packing my gear and I was just kind of really thinking about the 300 and some miles that I needed to ride on the next day in order to get to my next interview. Each guy had heard about the project in a different way. Some were friends of friends, some found it browsing the web, and even one guy found it on Kickstarter when he was doing research to raise money to help his band record their first album. You know, I still don't know how Mike even heard about the project. His email was simple. I'm interested. That's all he wrote. So when Mike got in touch with me, I I just said, sure, just let me know when and where. And he's like, I have 45 minutes and you can come and meet me here at my apartment. And fortunately for us, the time that he was available was my last night before I was going to leave New York City. And he actually only lived 10 blocks from where I was staying. Mike greeted me at the door. And as he was getting some water set up, I started getting really nervous because just like Justin's interview, there was a lot of New York City traffic um, in his windows were right on a really busy road. And so I asked him if he had any other rooms that might be quieter for us to meet in. And he walked me around the house. And um, once we got to his kids' rooms, I knew that that was it. Um, there are these bunk beds towering above us. And to begin the interview, I asked Mike about why he even chose to participate in the project. It just sort of hit me. It's been a long time since sort of talking about my father's suicide in, in sort of a public way with friends and others and it was just seemed like maybe the time to sort of go back to it and sort of reprocess it after after you know seven years um, since it happened so it just seemed like the right time to sort of think about it and talk about it what has been your process of talking about the loss of your father over the years you know it's I've sort of shared with obviously my closest friends sort of kept it a secret in my professional life um, even as I was sort of sort of going through um, you know my father's death I sort of sort of kept it quiet as among my colleagues but obviously I have a, a group of friends and family members that have sort of talked to about it and with throughout the process you know he's a very thoughtful person um, you know he was he was well liked and well respected at work and in the community you know it was sort of a rock a rock in my life it, I think it goes back to those um, to those Saturdays that we would go out together you know it was uh, we, he'd take me out to lunch and we'd go to some you know some restaurant somewhere in uh, southern Connecticut and we would just have an hour hour and a half two hours every week of just sort of sitting down and you know we always had that time to just sort of connect and I think that's sort of how we grew so close over the years I, I left college you know left for college when I was 18 um, you know and we also we all he would find times at that point he was retired and had um, he retired mostly because of the depression that he was sort of feeling um, when I was I think 15 or 16 so at that point he was doing well again and we would just find a weekend night to sort of meet each other sort of halfway and have a dinner in Springfield, Massachusetts, you know. So it was those were some other times, yeah. What was the depression like that he was going through? You know, so this goes back to him sort of disclosing that he had depression. I didn't know for most of my life that he, there was anything wrong, you know. It was, uh, he had episodes sort of before I was born um, he was hospitalized when he was, you know, probably a teenager and then into his early 20s and then had a family and sort of had episodes along the way, but sort of it was 
sort of bounce in and out of it. And then when I was 15 or 16, I think something changed at work. Um, and he took a turn for the worse and, um, you know, started to go inward and just wasn't able to really function. And I think he was deciding, deciding about retiring or taking, you know, taking a, a disability leave. Um, he had to take time off. And it was really the first time that I had sort of seen him in, in that sort of depressive state, probably around the time I was 12 or 13, you know, or maybe earlier, you know, he would take pills every day, you know, it's like, Dad, what, what, what's, what are those pills for? Um, and he would tell me it was, you know, what, one foot was bigger than the other. You know, there was something to sort of, you know, didn't want to talk about it. There was a time that uh, I was out to, to lunch with my father and my grandmother, and my grandmother had mentioned something about being hospitalized, and it didn't really sort of sink in, but we were driving back from Jersey City to our home in Connecticut, and uh, he, we, I think the Jets game was on or the Giants game was on, he turned it down, and he, he wanted to tell me about sort of him having a depression and you know, if I ever had an experience like that, that I should talk to people. And so there was that sort of conversation going on. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just sort of like, Dad, can we turn the radio back up? It was like the, that awkward conversation. Um, but it wasn't until I was, you know, 15 or 16 and really saw how devastating it was. And what was it? What was the feel in the house at that time? And you, you said you have a brother and sister. Where are they older, younger? They're, they're 10 years older, so they were out of the house. So it was really me, my mother, and my, and my father at home. And I was, I was older, but it was still, you know, it was hard. It was hard to see my father, you know, suffering. I remember I napped a lot during that time, probably to deal with kids nap around that age, obviously. But I sort of also felt sort of the need to sort of escape sort of the, the pain and the anguish in the house. And that lasted probably about a year and a half or so. What was your relationship like with your father during those years after you left the house? I mean, it was good. I mean, we were we were communicating a lot. He was still someone I wanted to go visit and, and see and, and have that, that special time with. A few years before I got married, and this is sort of that period between college ending and you know starting a life with my wife, that's when the depression really sort of kicked in and I'm not sure why it happened so that's where everything sort of turned for the worse I mean really just one day I mean I was wasn't home I sort of knew that he was sort of having a hard time but not really understanding how bad it was I got a call and and he had he had overdosed on on pills on one of his medications he was rushed to the hospital in a coma at that point it wasn't clear whether or not he was gonna come out of it um, so we were sort of preparing for the end and you know, after 24 hours or so, you know, after sort of bad news from the doctor, he actually did come out of it. And that was really a, like a wake-up call for our entire family. Um, and we sort of came out of it, and it, you know, it felt so good to be on the other side, and we're going to get him back, and we're going to work through these issues, and you know, things are, you know, God, wow, I can't believe we made it out of this. You know, he was he was gone, and now he's back, and it w- it was great. But there was still everything that he was dealing with. You know, it was we we felt like we had dodged a bullet, but he was still back with all those terrible feelings. So the family really did come together. You know, we got him a new psychiatrist, found group. You know, it was a, like a full court press to see what we could do to get him the support he needed. But it still wasn't working. I had just started school uh, when when he had the overdose. And then I think probably six months later, he was hospitalized, and that was just terrible. I mean, he was just so low, and it was so hard to see him with so much pain. They tried electric shock therapy. 
you know, he would do anything. I just remember sitting in the in the um, the psych ward and you know sitting around a table and you know just so much love, just touching him and, and holding him and really the whole family, my brother, and sister, my mother, and he, and he just would say, I, I know I'm surrounded by so much love and I just I can't feel it. It was, it was so hard, so hard to understand and to fathom how you could so much love being poured upon you and just not being able to to really take it all in. It was really two years of just struggling. It started in September with the overdose. It was a hospitalization in, I think, February. Um, there was probably a, a second hospitalization in the spring. It was around Christmas time, and he had a car accident. That was another suicide attempt. We all sort of took turns calling him throughout this period, this two-year period. My brother would call him in the morning. I would call him in the afternoon. We were always sort of checking in. Some days were better than the others, but it was clear that it was just not good, you know? Just, it was sort of a constant um, struggle to get out of bed, to sort of get through the day. At the end of the day, he would feel a little bit better, but it was, you know, he had struggled for 12 hours, you know, to get to that place. What's going on in your head at that time? I mean, you're trying to build a life and... Yeah, I was was getting through school, and this was the time that I was, uh, you know, I was getting married. You know, there's a question of whether or not my father, you know, he had just been hospitalized, whether or not he would be there, you know, for the wedding. You know, he came to the wedding. He was, you know, he was there. He walked with me. We, but he was still just sort of, he was struggling um, every step of the way. And it was, it was good that he was there, but it was also clear that it was just a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the father I had 10 years ago. It was sort of a, a new person who was struggling every single day. Were there talks of these suicide attempts amongst your friends? You know, suicide was, was new to me, really. I mean, I, I didn't have friends who had committed suicide. Um, I didn't have family members, you know, th- that I knew of, you know, that had taken their life. So it was, you know, it was a whole new experience. And it's one thing to sort of have someone, you know, two or three removed sort of going through it. It's, it's you know, it's another thing to have someone that you're so intimately, you know, connected to struggling so hard. After the, the initial suicide attempt, after the car accident, you know, that no one really talked about, but it was clear it was, you know, it was an attempt to take his life. I mean, at least in my mind, and I, my brother sort of says, he, you know, I think he was sort of thought that he could really pull through this. I mean, in my mind, I sort of always expected to have that day come when the call would not be, you know, he's doing okay, but that he's taken his life. My wife was pregnant. Um, and, you know, we were expecting, expecting our son. And it was the end of January, and we got a call. We were walking to dinner with some friends. My aunt called, called me and said, you know, Mike, I'm so sorry. Your father's died. And, you know, it was the call I was waiting for, you know, sort of expecting and waiting for. And it was just, it was, you know, it just took everything out of me. You know, you think that call will come it's still hard when it does and it's so painful I think he had waited for my mother to leave one evening she probably went out to for work and probably drank a good amount of alcohol and got in the tub and cut himself and, you know and throughout this process you know my brother was calling and I was calling and you know and I'm thinking I was probably calling him and leaving a message at the same time that he was he was doing this. My mother found him. 
at night and, and called us. You know, the first time it was a shock. You know, how did this happen? You know, where did this come from? We had gone through two years of being deep in the depression with my father, you know, and understanding where he was and, and seeing him in so much pain. So by that point, everything was sort of out there. You know, it's like, how do you how do you talk about suicide? You know, some people know, some people don't. There's a closed casket. You know, my mother was Catholic. My father was Catholic. Sort of going through... Um, you know, a Catholic Catholic service with some people knowing and some people not knowing, you know, and, and that's, you know, something that my mother's had to sort of work through, you know, just sort of what it, what it means to be Catholic and sort of all the, the baggage sort of put on suicide. Um, and she's, you know, been dealing with that, but, um, you know, it was hard. It was hard. It's, you know, it was, it was, it was hard. It was hurt. It, it was shocking. You know, the loss of someone that, you know, you really cared about um, knowing that you're not going to get him back and that, the, you know, the fight that you've been in is, you know, is over, you know. People talk about suicide as sort of a, a, a selfish act. You know, at that point, after all his, um, you know, pain and anguish, it seems selfish to keep him alive. You know, he was living for us, you know, and it just... You know, I don't blame him. How was that in terms of that forgiveness process? Was that instant for you or? It, it was pretty immediate. You know, after talking to him every day and, and hearing the pain. It's like a cancer, you know, every day. It's just dealing with this pain, this anguish and not feeling like it's gonna get any better. It felt like a terminal cancer that he was dealing with. And I, you know, I didn't blame him for, for doing what he did. You know, it hurt. It was, you wish you could say goodbye. But I don't blame him. You know, there's always that feeling that you want to introduce your father to this next generation. You know, and that's obviously disappointing. But it was hard for, you know, it was so hard for him to be, you know, a grandfather. You know, it's the, the kind of the joy that you you sort of you expect a a grandfather to have to see his new grandchild. You know, he wasn't feeling that. Um, you know, and just for me personally, you know, I I had you know I was dealing with my father's death, but I was also dealing, you know, was expecting a, a new life. So I, in some ways, it might have been you know, just what I needed at that time, um, to focus on my wife and to focus on, on a newborn. You know, as you were thinking about fatherhood, what, you know, looking back, these weekly yeah. connections and yeah. these great Saturdays, and what of your father and how he approached fatherhood have you kind of wanted or attempted to adopt in your own process? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love, you know, and then try to find that time for my son and I, and for my daughter too. I mean, my, my son is coming to an age where we, we can do those things, you know, and have those conversations. It's not, you know, a, a three-year-old or a four-year-old who's sort of just trying to keep alive and, um, you know, you're playing with, but to sort of have those more meaningful conversations, you know, I'm sort of getting to that point with my son and, and soon with my daughter where, you know, I really value the, the one-on-one time that we have, sort of going to a donut shop, you know, together. Um, 
and finding 45 minutes or an hour just to kind of hear what's going on. I mean, that's, you know, I'm trying to recreate that as best as I can. And I'm curious, do you think it's genetics or, you know, what was your, uh, how did you comprehend his illness? Well, yeah, I do think it was genetics. I mean, he was sort of dealing with it throughout his life. Yeah, I do think it's genetics. I mean, there were things that triggered him at various times in his life that sort of threw him off. Um, but I, yes, I do think it's genetics. Yeah. Was that a calculus for you in terms of having having children and, and thinking, is this something that might be a risk? You know, because I never felt it, um, and because my my sister never felt it, I mean, to the same degree, um, and, and my brother sort of never had, you know, the same intense emotions, it felt safe. I mean, you never really know. There's going to be a point where I have that conversation with my son, you know, when I'm in the car and I have to turn down the music and say, I want to tell you about your grandfather. And I think about that, you know, and hope that he never goes through this experience because it's, it's just horrible, it's just horrible. Do you have any fear that you might have a, an emotional challenge yourself? Not in the same way. I feel like if I, if I was going to see the depths of depression that, that he felt and saw, I feel like I would have had it already, experienced it already. You know, it's sort of in the back of my mind always, but I don't, I don't fear it the way that he did. What would the conversation in your ideal world look like with your son um, about your father? hard you know because we we have these conversations now you know he wants to know about you know tell me about your dad they're hard conversations they're really hard you know I I think I would talk about what a great dad he was how I enjoyed spending time with him but that he had a sickness I think I would go back to what my dad told me you know, if you ever feel this way, tell me, tell someone. But that, that conversation is coming, and I, you know, it's, it's not that far off. Um, but we'll get there. What do you think your father would be saying about your life right now? He'd be proud. You know, in a, in a different place, he would just love, you know, just love the kids. You know, they have such great personalities and I think he would just, he would adore them and just have so much fun getting to know them. And, you know, I, I think he would be proud of me, not as only as a person, but as a father. And, um, and I do feel him. I feel him with me, you know, as I, I sort of go through my journey of fatherhood. You know, he's right there besides me. You know, he was, he was also just very, he was very emotional and also very sweet. Um, and I, you know, occasionally he would like write notes, you know. I can imagine the notes that he would write, you know, proud of you. Proud of you as a father and as a person. And I can, I can feel that. And I think, you know, as, as hard as that is, you still need to reconnect with, with the hard parts. And I think going back to the question of, you know, why I'm, why I'm doing this, you know, seven years later, what drew me to this project? 
you know, I knew this was going to be hard. You know, this is not something you've, you know, sign up for like a, you know, it's not like two tickets to a, a Knicks game or something. You know it's going to be hard, but you're sort of, you know, working through the hard stuff as much as sort of remembering the, the good. I opened up to people I trust. People start feeling different about you, knowing if there's been a difficult thing in your life. I told people I trusted, you know, and I still tell people I trust. But it's also important to, to tell people. But it's hard because, you know, people just sort of deal with it in different ways, sort of make their own assumptions. So I'm still tr trying to figure that out. I'm still trying to figure out my calculus. If you experience healthy support, what does that look like? Well, it's someone who mostly is capable of listening. Uh, someone who I feel sort of has a sense that sort of has the empathy to sort of hear it, understand it, may have had similar experiences with mental illness in their family, who sort of understand it's really just the pain and anguish and sort of how some things are just sort of out of your control. Um, it's really just finding the people that you trust. And if you, if someone were listening to this who had recently lost their father to suicide, you know, what would you share with them that may be of help? You know, find the people that you can talk to. Find the people that will, you know, will support you. And um, it's not your fault. Things are out of your control. Do you think we should be talking about suicide more in in our society? Yeah, we and we should. I, I feel like we are in some ways compared to where we were, you know decades ago. I mean, the only time I was sort of surrounded by people who were dealing with, you know, the same pain was when we were in the hospital with him. And we especially need to be talking with it with with kids, you know, adolescent, and I feel like that's sort of happening more and more. I feel like we're going in the right direction in terms of putting it out there. Obviously, there's still a stigma attached. Um, but I'm sort of hopeful that we're sort of heading in the right direction. I mean, not necessarily to cure the disease, but to at least identify it and recognize it and support each other. If you had the opportunity to tell your father anything, what would you say? I love you. I understand. And I forgive you. That's what I'd say. This really got me. You know, I find Mike's perspective on forgiveness incredibly heart-opening, and um, I've only cried once since I was a kid, and there are times that I try to cry because I know that there is a cathartic release in there s somewhere for me, but I just can never tap into it. And as I was sitting with Mike on the floor of his kids' rooms, and he's so open and so tender, and I can feel these tears welling up within me, but I just can't let them flow out of me, and it may be because I've never once thought of forgiving my father. I don't even know. Mike seems so superhuman to me with how he speaks of the love and appreciation for his father and ability to forgive him so simply. After I left Mike's apartment, I walked home wondering if other guys were able to forgive their fathers for killing themselves. And if I had the capacity within me, I doubted it. I mean, it was such a foreign concept to me. I'd never thought about forgiving my father. It's not, it hasn't even been on the table. 
and I honestly couldn't recall a moment when I actually contemplated forgiving my father. I only thought in gradations of anger and resentment. Over the rest of this trip and project, I would refer to this interview as my magic hour with Mike. I mean, hearing his story and learning about forgiveness from him completely recalibrated how I thought about my father's life and how he ended it. And that was my last night in Brooklyn. You know, I decided not to throw a goodbye party or have a gathering of any kind. I just went to the mechanic and got my bike, went to bed early, and ended up getting up with the sun. And I had my last New York City bagel. I packed up my bike, which took me about 45 minutes, and I hit the road to meet Lou in Baltimore. Lou was the first guy who contacted me who had also lost his father at a young age. He was four when he last saw his father, who was a senior officer in the South Vietnamese Army. Lou and his family were on one of the last planes out of Saigon, but his father stayed behind. Tune in to the next episode to hear his family's story of survival and his own journey of healing.